Hi there. My name is Andrew, though I'm perhaps better known as Dominic's husband, and I'd like to welcome you to Love Chapel Hill, where our name is our mission, to love Chapel Hill with heart of Jesus. Thanks for worshiping with us today. Hi, friends. I'm Tiana Clark, and I just want to welcome you to the watch party on Sunday mornings. Um, it's been a really easy way, a really simple way for us each week. Um, we've been going and uh, just to join and worship as a community, and I just want to encourage you to, to join us. Yeah, thanks, Tiana. So I'm Chris, and uh, as Tiana said, we've gone uh, to the watch party numerous times now, and especially it's been a year since we've been able to worship in person, and so it's just been amazing to, 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 to zoom in, as we've as we all gotten accustomed to in the last year, and to see people in their homes, drinking their coffee, dress comfortably um, as a way to, to, to worship and experience, worship God and experience community together. I'm usually in my pajamas. There you go, right? <laughs> and so, uh, so thank you for your time. We really, we really do hope that you tune in. So, in terms of logistics, if you go to lovechapelhill.com and click on the home button or link or whatever they call it these days, and then scroll down, you can find the Zoom information and the password and so forth. So, so please join us, and we, we hope to see you very soon. Hi, my name is Sarah Probst, and I am a senior at UNC Chapel Hill. I'm currently leading our College Women's Bible Study, and I would like to invite you to a special event that we are hosting on February 13th, better known as Galentine's Day. So all college women, I want to invite you to join us on that day, February 13th, for a Galentine's Pancake Virtual Hangout. We will provide the pancake mix, chocolate chips, all of the toppings, anything you could want for pancakes. And all you need to do is sign up and we will send you a Zoom link. You can set up your phone or laptop in the kitchen and we will make pancakes together, laugh, and just get to know one another. Uh, please sign up by today, which is February 7th, um, Sunday, if you're watching this a different day, so that we have time to deliver the supplies and gather them and um, put them into little separate servings. Um, you just need to know the number of people who are going to be in your group. It it doesn't matter if you have roommates, please invite them. Um, there's a sign up link in your email that you've gotten for service today. There's also sign up on Facebook. And if you have any questions, you can email joel at lovechapelhill.com. Thanks. And I hope to see you there. Hey everyone. It's Lauren. I hope you all are doing well this Sunday. As I'm sure you've noticed, it's gotten a lot colder over the past few weeks. And I don't know about you, but I've had to really bundle up when I'm going outside in order to stay warm. As I think about the weather changes, I think a lot about our church members and our friends who are living outside right now and who are struggling more to stay warm. I have been really grateful over the past few weeks to get to know a lot of these people better at the varsity on Sundays. And... Something that I have noticed over the past few weeks is that a few people who drop by um, are missing essential clothing items for the winter, um, like a solid pair of gloves or a warm coat. And because of this, I want to take a moment today to invite you all to donate to Strangely Warmed. We've been collecting and distributing clothing items over the past few weeks to people who could use them. And right now, as it continues to get colder, we have a need for more donations. Our biggest need specifically is men's clothes, coats, and gloves. If you'd like to donate, um, you're welcome to do so at the Varsity on Sunday mornings from 9 to 9.30. And if you would prefer to um, donate funds, you can also do that by going to the Give option at lovechapelhill.com. If you choose this option, it's great because we are able to go out and buy the specific items that are most needed right now. I hope you all will join us in helping make sure that folks are staying safe and warm this winter.
the waters, come let the broken sing, come all you sons and daughters, his love changes everything, come when fear is fine, finding the risen king, come on and let the light in your love changes everything. Love Chapel Hill. We are continuing our exploration of the Gospel of Matthew today, following the story of Jesus through the lens of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, last time we were together, we talked about these two stories, uh, the baptism and the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, and how those locked together uh, as this launching point for the ministry of Jesus, the baptism being this commission moment, the voice of the Father over him, uh, the Spirit descending on him. Um, and then the temptation moment, the 40 days he spends in the wilderness, in the desert, fasting uh, as this preparation moment for his ministry. Uh, and then when he's tempted by the enemy, uh, he does what we have always failed to do. He is faithful in the place where we have failed over and over again through the human story. Uh, and it shows that he has come to overcome and over throw sin and gives us this framework of what his ministry is going to accomplish. So now we are moving into uh, where his ministry begins. Matthew chapter four, uh, we're going to start in verse 18 today uh, and go through 22. Matthew chapter four, verse 18 through 22. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, 
he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. What we have here uh, is the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, and it starts with this calling of his first disciples. And so as we're moving through this passage today, uh, this key passage that sets up in so many ways the rest of the book, um, we're going to look at three large windows that we're going to be looking through uh, in this passage today. Okay, so three large windows uh, through which we're going to be viewing this. Uh, the call, the cost, the commission. Those words are familiar to you uh, because over the last several years, we keep coming to that over and over again, keep coming back to it uh, as this description of what Jesus's vision of discipleship looks like as we read it through all four gospels. Uh, we see this over and over through all four gospels, the call, the cost, the commission. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so as we look at this calling of the first disciples, we're going to view it through those three windows. Uh, we start with the call and uh, we get this moment where Jesus says these just these three words, come follow me, come follow me. And there's this immediate reaction from these first disciples that they drop everything. They walk away from everything and they become his disciples and follow him. So what exactly is going on here in this moment? Um, as we know, Jesus uh, will go on to call other disciples as well. He forms this community around himself um, that becomes this embodiment, this expression of the kingdom that he has come to establish, uh, that he is bringing. Um, and he goes on to bring 12 disciples around him. And so to Matthew's audience, remember, Matthew is a gospel that's written to a primarily Jewish audience. And so just the number 12 immediately in their mind unlocks all of this history and all of this backstory. And they get it. They are able to see what Jesus is trying to say by calling 12 disciples. It's this, it's this renewal and this restoration of Israel's story, of Israel's history. And so it's this healing of Israel's family line. Throughout the, uh, the Hebrew Bible and, and the Old Testament, uh, we see that God uses Abraham's family, Abraham's family line, to become a blessing to the entire world. Uh, and part of the representation of that that we get repeatedly uh, are the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel, the, the 12 uh, sons of Jacob that become uh, the 12 tribes and represent this family line. And so by Jesus choosing 12, it's this symbol of something new starting again. And by it being something new, it doesn't mean that it is in any way uh, a rejection of the old, not at all. Instead, it's a restoration and it's a renewal and it's a healing of the old. And that's what's happening in, in this. And that's a, a theme all the way throughout the ministry of Jesus. He has come to set right what has gone wrong in the story. Another part that I find so beautiful about that is that these four, first four disciples who will go on to form the inner circle of that larger uh, school of 12, that community of 12 that forms around Jesus and in the larger circle of disciples around them as well. Um, this inner circle, the fact that Jesus chooses uh, two sets of brothers. And so he calls uh, Peter and Andrew, two brothers. And then he calls James and John, two brothers. I find that beautiful and interesting as well as we look at the old story. Because all the way through the human story as a whole, and the story of Abraham's family specifically, we see repeated over and over again, this storyline of a broken brotherhood. 
we get one generation deep into humanity's story. This, by the time we get to the second generation, we've got Cain and Abel, two brothers, and there's this betrayal moment where violence and murder enters into the story of humanity's relationships with each other. And that sets a tone of brokenness through the whole rest of our story. Um, as the story goes on and gets into the specifically into the story of Abraham's family, we have Isaac and Ishmael, again, a broken brotherhood. We have Jacob and Esau, a broken brotherhood. We have Joseph and his brothers, a broken brotherhood. And it's this fractured storyline that follows all the way through. But as Jesus is forming this new community, that's going to be an expression of the, of the kingdom that he is establishing. He chooses two brothers and two sets of brothers. He's beginning again. He's renewing and he's restoring and he's healing in all of the broken places. He has come to set the story right. Another piece that that is really interesting about that is that as Jesus does call them and just these three words, come follow me and that immediate response that they drop their nets or they walk away from the boat and their father and they go and they follow Jesus. Uh, it's easy to get tripped up over that and to try to uh, figure out and wonder, like, why was their response so immediate? And there are a lot of reasons for that. Obviously, we know that Jesus is the most compelling person to ever live. Anyone who's who's experienced a relationship with Jesus, we sense that. Even if you are only looking at Jesus from a purely historical perspective, he is so compelling. There is something... Uh, Throughout history, he gets described as irresistible. There is something so compelling and drawing about him. Uh, even today, uh, people who do not believe at all in Christianity, people who outright reject the claims of Christianity uh, and frequently point to the brokenness of Christianity. Uh, one of their biggest problems with it is the fact that Christianity doesn't live up to the ideals that they see in the person of Jesus. There's something so compelling about Jesus and they're drawn to him as a person. And so, of course, they're drawn to Jesus. Uh, but there's there's even more to it that's going on there. Uh, in the other Gospels, we're given a little more context for why this response was so immediate. Uh, in Luke's Gospel, uh, when he's telling the same story of the same calling story, uh, he includes in that this moment of the miraculous catch where Jesus comes to them. And they've been fishing all night. They haven't caught anything. Uh, and Jesus tells them to throw their nets out again and to try again. And, the, and they think this is ridiculous. There's, they, this is hopeless. This is not going to work. Uh, but in this moment of trust, they do that. And the result is this miraculous catch that they bring in and, and almost sinks the boat. And um, so there's this miracle and this sign that accompanies the call, that they see who Jesus is. Their eyes are open to who he is. So of course they drop everything and follow him. John gives us even more context in his gospel. Uh, and he tells us that there was already some established relationship there with Jesus. And so this is not the first time that these disciples are meeting Jesus or hearing about him or seeing him. Um, but there's already an established relationship. And John specifically tells us that Andrew... Peter's brother, one of these four that's called today, uh, had been a disciple of John the Baptist and that he's there when John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And so John's disciples then leave John and go and begin to follow Jesus and begin to learn from Jesus. And so already there's this established relationship and Andrew goes back and tells his brother Peter um, about this. And so there's an established relationship already. Even in Matthew's gospel, uh, who Matthew, who doesn't give us those other stories surrounding it, he does tell us uh, right before this passage that in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, uh, that Jesus makes his home now. He's, he's left Nazareth and he makes his home in this uh, region of Galilee. 
And so he even makes his home in this town of Capernaum, we're told. And that's the hometown of Peter and Andrew. And so already the word is starting to spread about who Jesus is. And Matthew tells us right before this that Jesus had already begun to preach this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is here now. And so this, these rumors have started to already spread about this rabbi Jesus. And so on multiple layers, there's reason for them to drop everything and to go and follow him. But there's one other piece here that I think is extremely significant when we look not just at the context that Matthew's telling us about or even the context of the other gospels, but when we look at the context of that day and time and the culture behind what is happening in this moment. Uh, Jesus is a rabbi. Uh, over 60 times or around 60 times throughout the gospels, Jesus is referred to as a teacher or a rabbi. And this was seen as this uh, revered and esteemed position in, in, in that community at that day and time. And in the educational setup uh, of Judaism, um, there are these three levels of education that happened uh, for, for the children. Um, the beginning up to about the age of 12, uh, children were taught um, the five books of Moses. Okay, so the, those first five books of Moses, uh, sometimes called the Pentateuch or called the Torah. Uh, the law and the books of the law. So we've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, they were not only taught these, though, as young children, they memorized them. They internalized them. And so uh, they were taught to fall in love with the law of God, to fall in love with the Torah, uh, with God's revelation to his people, with, this, with the books of Moses. And so they memorized them, they internalized them. Once you get to about the age of 12 um, and complete that level of your education, uh, most of the children who went through that process stopped. That was where their education ended. Uh, and most of them returned either uh, to the daily life of their, their family business or they apprenticed under some other business person to learn uh, a trade and to learn a livelihood. And so the majority, vast majority of the children stopped there and they went on and they took on the family business, like for instance, becoming a fisherman. Um, the next level, though, uh, the best and the brightest of those students were invited to continue their education. Uh, and then through that process, they end up memorizing the rest of the Hebrew Bible, the rest of the Old Testament. Um, once they completed that, the best of the, of the best, the best and brightest, uh, the top students who had the most potential, who showed the most intellect, the most skill, um, were invited then to take the next step. Everybody else went home, apprenticed under somebody else, learned the family business. Uh, the very best and brightest were invited then to try to become the apprentice of a rabbi. Why? So that they themselves might become a rabbi someday. And so um, as that went along and, and as the, those uh, top students uh, applied to become the apprentices, applied to become the disciples and the students of a revered rabbi, they would begin to follow that rabbi around everywhere that he went. They would uh, soak in his teaching. They would uh, not just listen to the teaching, but they would enact the teaching. They would obey the teaching. They would take that teaching on as the framework of their lives. They would follow this teacher everywhere. They would imitate this teacher in the hopes of becoming like this teacher so that one day they could do what the teacher had been doing. Not just to learn what the teacher had to say, but to begin to do what the teacher did. And so this is the hope of every young child and of every family that their child would grow up and become this. And so they would follow that rabbi everywhere. They would imitate the life of that rabbi. 
Uh, we have a lot of people who either teach at UNC or you're a student at UNC or at Duke. Um, imagine uh, a professor uh, walking across campus and having this trail of students behind that professor. Uh, the professor goes into uh, the dining commons or whatever and goes to that station that the professor wants to eat from and this trail of students follows to the same station. Uh, the professor chooses a certain type of meal uh, for the day and all of the students choose the exact same meal. The professor goes and sits at the table that the students sit with, and they just imitate and follow this professor around everywhere. Uh, this is what it was like. For those of you who are elementary school teachers, you're like, yeah, I've actually experienced that. That's my real life. I've seen that. Okay, give me a break during recess. Um, but this was what it was like. And so when Jesus invites these fishermen with this invitation of come follow me. I'm a rabbi and I'm inviting you to come and be my disciple. Of course they left everything behind. Of course they dropped it and, and, and gave it all to him and said, this is where I want my life to go. This was the hope and the dream of every young student to be chosen for that. And Jesus does that. He comes to them and says, come follow me. And it's this call, it's this invitation to come and to learn from him, to walk with him and to learn to do what he was doing, to become like him to the point that then you began to do what he was doing. It is fascinating that Jesus steps outside of the normal system these were students who didn't make the cut. These were students who had been told, you just don't have it. You don't have the potential uh, to become the student of a rabbi. Go back home and do whatever your parents uh, are doing. Pick, take up the family business. You're not going to cut it. And Jesus steps out of that system and calls these people who in, in, in a very real sense had been rejected by the system. And so he steps out of it. And those who had been rejected, Jesus says, no, you're not rejected. I'm choosing you. I am calling you. You are chosen. And he specifically went after these people who had been passed over. And he said, I want you. I want you. They were just everyday people, everyday people. But Jesus says, no, that, that has actually been part of the preparation for what I'm trying to build, for the kind of school I'm building around me, for the kind of community I'm drawing around me, for the kind of kingdom that I have come to establish. It is made up of everyday people because that's what Christianity is. It is an everyday movement. The movement of Jesus is about every day. It's an everyday faith. And so he draws to himself everyday People. This isn't something that's reserved for the experts or for the elite. This is an everyday person kind of movement. It has been since the beginning and it continues to be that today. Jesus is looking to you today and he's coming to you in the middle of your everyday environment. And he's saying, you might feel passed over. You might feel rejected. You might feel like you don't have what it takes. Maybe you've been directly told that you don't have what it takes. I'm telling you, I want you. Come follow me. Come follow me. And of course, they dropped it all and they went after Jesus. I think it's beautiful that in this we get a definition of what discipleship is designed to be. It's this movement beyond knowing into becoming, walking in the footsteps of Jesus, going where Jesus goes. Jesus doesn't just say, believe in me, believe in me. Of course, belief is the central part of Christianity. Of course, every single one of us 
has to come to that point uh, where we enter into a belief in Jesus and an embrace of the truth of who Jesus is. And we put our faith in him. But Jesus says, putting your faith in me isn't just a mental activity. It's not just something that takes place in the heart. It works its way out of you and into the everyday common moments of your life. It reshapes your entire life. Yes, it reshapes the way you think, but it's more than the way you think. It's more than the way you believe. It's how you live. And he's inviting us into that. It's this everyday kind of becoming. Invited to go where he goes, to live how he lived, to embrace the saving grace that he is offering to us, uh, that he accomplishes through the sacrifice of his own life giving us forgiveness for our sins and bringing us into a healed and reconciled relationship with God, entering into this transformation that takes place by the depth of his love into this life of being filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit so that the fruit of the Spirit spirit, uh, begins to make its way out of our lives and into the world around us, this life that is baptized, that goes under the water in this symbol of surrender and is brought back up out of the water in this sign of new life in Jesus. This life that is oriented around the life of Jesus, shaped to look like him, shaped by his truth to practice the way of Jesus and to live in this life of obedience to his teaching, not just admiration for his teaching, not just repeating the things that he has said, but your whole life being oriented around and shaped by and living in obedience to the teaching of Jesus. This is what we're invited into. This is the call of discipleship. And of course, it's about believing in Jesus. But Jesus intentionally from the very beginning, the very first disciples he ever called, he frames it in this way. Come follow me. Come follow me. Go where I'm going. Let me lead the way. Let me guide you. Let me take you into new places and reshape and reorient your life around my life. My life for yours. That brings us to the second window. So if that first window for us to view uh, this passage through is the call. Uh, The second is the cost. Jesus makes it extremely clear all the way throughout the gospels what it's going to cost us to follow him. He says, come follow me. And then early on, he begins to tell his disciples exactly where it is that he's headed. He said that he's headed to the cross to lay his life down on the cross. And this cost of discipleship is clearly explained as repeatedly Jesus says, you must lay down your life and take up the cross. This is what it means to live a life of discipleship. It moves beyond just belief. Every believer must become a disciple. Every believer must become a disciple. We must become his student. We must become his apprentice. We must go where he goes and do what he does. And in the same way, we must be ready and respond by laying down our lives and taking up his cross, reshaped into the shape of his cross. The way that this gets worked out in this initial call is we see the disciples drop their nets. They drop their nets or James and John walk away from their father Zebedee and leave the boat and the family business behind. They leave behind their livelihood They leave behind what they assumed would be the rest of their lives and their future. And they walk with Jesus. They leave behind their security and everything that they have known. And they now take on this new path of following Jesus. They drop their nets. They let go of what they had been holding on to in order to take a hold of Jesus. This is the requirement of discipleship. There is no way around it. To move from believer to disciple requires embracing this cost. And Jesus in his vision of discipleship makes it extremely clear that every disciple must walk this way in following 
him. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his classic book, uh, if you've not read this before, please read it. It's called The Cost of Discipleship. Uh, it is a must read uh, for us as disciples and extremely timely now. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes this in The Cost of Discipleship, where he talks about the difference between uh, cheap grace and costly grace. And that so many of us uh, want the cheap grace. We just want to be forgiven. Uh, we want to be told that we are embraced. And that is absolutely a crucial part of the, of the message of Jesus. But Jesus goes on to say, this is going to be costly. You must lay down your life and take up the cross. Um, Willie James Jennings, he's an African-American theologian uh, professor at Yale Divinity School. He says this, he describes the early church in this way. Uh, he says, almost no one in the early church in this Jesus, in the beginnings of the Jesus movement, almost no one is doing what they want to do. The spirit of God is pressing every disciple to do precisely what God wants done and not what they might envision. To follow Jesus is this total reorientation of our lives. And he warns us up front, it's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you everything. Is it worth it to you? It's easy for us to talk about all that we gain from Jesus, and we should, and we should celebrate all that there is to gain from Jesus. But we also have to be realistic about confronting what we stand to lose. Jesus was realistic with us about that, and he was clear about that. This yes to Jesus is an all-consuming, all-encompassing yes, and it unleashes a thousand smaller no's in our lives. He tells us that he has to have full access, that he has to have full permission to edit, to edit the plan, to edit the map, to edit the budget, to edit the priorities and the values. That's what it means to lay down our lives and to take up the cross. It's to say, reshape me into your life and your priorities become my priorities. Along with the call, comes the very clear description of the cost. And he says, this is going to cost you everything to be a follower of mine. Will you let go of the nets? Will you walk away from the boat? And will you follow me? So we've seen this passage through that first window of the call. We've seen this passage through that second window of the cost. And now let's look at it through that last window of the commission. Uh, I find it extremely interesting that here in the very beginning of Jesus' relationship with these disciples, at the beginning of him calling them uh, and at the beginning of, of him forming this community around himself, he gives a glimpse of the future and he shows us all the way of where this is going to go. There's still much mystery. We're not given turn by turn directions of, of completely where we're headed. Uh, we don't know everything that's going to be facing the disciples. But he does, in this initial calling, even give them this glimpse of the future of the church. And we see even the seed of the church right here in the beginning of what Jesus says as he's calling these first disciples. Uh, he says this, come follow me. That's the call. Uh, they do that. Immediately they leave everything behind. They drop their nets and walk away from the boat and they follow him. That's the cost. But he also gives the commission. And he says this, I will make you fish for people. And he gives them this glimpse forward. Uh, every believer must become a disciple. But we're told right here in the beginning that every disciple will become a missionary. Every believer is a disciple and every disciple is a missionary. And right from the very beginning, we get this small frame that shows us the bigger picture of where all of this is going to go. In Matthew chapter 28, at the end of this gospel, after Jesus has gone to the cross and experienced the crucifixion, laying down his life as a sacrifice for our sins. After Jesus has been raised from the dead in the power of the resurrection, overcoming the power of sin and even of death itself, conquering the grave. Then we have the moment of Jesus's ascension 
when he's returning to heaven to take his place on the throne in heaven. And he ends with this commission. And he says to his disciples, all authority of heaven and earth has been given to me. And now he sends them out in that same authority. And what is the commission he gives? He says, go make disciples. Go make disciples. And so right here in Jesus's initial call, we can see the whole picture unfolding. Come follow me, the call. Lay down your lives, take up the cross, walk away from the net and the boat, the cost, and go make disciples. I will make you fish for people, the commission. And we have that same commission today. And so Jesus's vision of discipleship encompasses all three of these. It is that full scope of the call, the cost, and the commission. Anything less is not full discipleship yet in following Jesus. He's calling us to thrive and to live and to surrender into that full picture of what that looks like. So what? So what are we supposed to do with all of that? Well, Uh, I think each one of those gives us a challenge today for wherever we might be. Number one, the call. Have you embraced the truth of the gospel and the hope of the gospel that Jesus has given his life for you and that Jesus invites you into surrendered relationship with him, transformation, salvation through Jesus? Have you embraced that call to become a follower of Jesus? If not, you need to do that. Reach out to us about how to do that. Uh, But even in this moment right now, all you need to do is simply say yes. Simply say yes to the Jesus who is calling you to be his disciple. The second, the cost. Where's the Holy Spirit convicting you today? Where's the Holy Spirit highlighting places in your life where you are still holding tightly, where you haven't given that all-consuming, all-encompassing yes. What is it that he's asking you to let go of today? In the same way that we see Simon, Peter, and Andrew let go of the nets and follow, in the same way that we see James and John walk away from the boat and follow, what is he asking you to let go of? Are you saying no? Are you willing right now in the depths of your soul, in the depths of your heart to open up your hands, to let go and to say yes to what he's asking of you? And then the last, the commission. How are you making disciples in your life? How are you a part of that? I want to challenge you to look into our discipleship path that we have laid out uh, as a church community here. One of the ways to do that is to become a part of one of the discipleship bands or one of the small groups um, or the story or the Isaiah study that's happening. Uh, All of that is about forming us as disciples of Jesus so that we can then know what it means to make more disciples. Which of those places um, is the point at which he's challenging you today? I want to leave you with a quote from the poet Maya Angelou. Uh, She said this. I came across this recently and it just struck me. Uh, She says this. The need for change bulldozed a road down the center of my mind. There was something about that statement that just struck me and stopped me. The need for change bulldozed a road down the center of my mind. And for some of you today, you are at that moment. In your mind, in your heart, in your soul, the reality of the need for change in your life has just opened up wide. You're seeing it clearly right now in this moment. And suddenly this road has opened up wide in front of you. In the same way that John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus' coming, and now in this moment, in the middle of your everyday life, the way himself is walking towards you in that now wide open road, and he's inviting you to follow him in the narrow path of discipleship with him. You know, you sense deeply that there's a need for change. 
And there's something about this Jesus. There's something irresistible. There's something compelling. There's something that's drawing you to him. And you know that he is change, that he is transformation, that he is the change that you need. He's the one who describes himself as the way, the truth, and the life. And he's inviting you to walk with him in that, in his way, in his truth, and in his life. Come follow me, he's saying. Leave everything behind. Lay it down. Give it to me. Surrender it to me. And in many ways, you'll find it resurrected in an even better sense and handed back to you in a better way than you ever imagined. Come follow me. Leave it all with me. And I will change your life. Yeah. 
My name is Valerie, and I hope you have enjoyed watching church this week. One thing that I am struck by when I think of the story of Jesus calling his first disciples is how right off the bat, Jesus is highlighting the importance of togetherness. I think that is something that is so important to walking through life with Jesus, that he doesn't call us to do it on our own, but with him and with others. And the word that sticks out to me when I think about that is alongside. Who is Jesus calling us to be alongside uh, other people in our life? And who is being called to be alongside us? I encourage you to take a little bit of time to think about that today. Who are you called to walk alongside and who's called to walk alongside you? Maybe it's somebody in your family, like the two sets of brothers in this passage. Uh, maybe it's somebody that you live with, or a friend, or somebody else from Love Chapel Hill. Maybe you don't really know, and that's okay, because we're blessed with a wonderful community at Love Chapel Hill with several ways to get connected to other people. So maybe you could join a discipleship band or a small group, uh, or just get to know some people on the watch party. There are lots of ways for us to walk with Jesus, not alone. And as we head into this week, I hope that you get to think about that. And I hope that you get to, whether virtually or safely in person, be with those people. And I hope that you enjoy your time until next Sunday. Mm -hmm.